0: Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. I want to talk to you about the importance of making good decisions. Hey, how many in the room have ever made a bad decision? we are all been there, right? Oh man, I mean, when I was uh, a teenager, I made so many bad decisions. Um, you know, at, at, there's all kinds of things that motivate us when we, when we make decisions. Very, very often, um, when you're younger, the thing that motivates you to make a decision is you want to look cool. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Like, I remember some of the things that my friends would dare me to do. And because I wanted to look cool in front of my friends, I did the most stupid stuff. It's it's like, hey, I dare you to you know to climb that wall and jump off it. It's like, how dumb is that, you know? When it's like fifteen feet high, you know. You, you, we just do dumb stuff sometimes because we we so want to be accepted. We so want to be part of something, and so, and so often we put our need for affirmation outside of ourselves. In in other words, instead of being centered people, we're, we're secure in who God has made us to be. We start to find our security in someone else's opinion or someone else's validation or someone else's words towards us. And often when it comes to making decisions in life, that leads us down a really rocky road. I remember one time one of my friends dared me to ask a teacher a lift home from school. Now you have to remember, this was back in the days of Charles Dickens. Not, not quite that far but I remember the first time I went to secondary school I'd, I'd kind of been a bit of a troublemaker at primary school and uh, this could this would be illegal to happen today by the way this would be illegal but this actually happened to me so my first day of secondary school there were um, a thousand students in the school so we were all in an auditorium about twice the size of this and we were all crammed in there and um And the headmaster got up up and he said, "Okay, Prothero Neville Fleet, stand up, please. So me and two other boys. And he said, I just need to announce to the whole school that these boys are troublemakers. (laughs) And uh, they caused trouble in the school that they came from and uh, we're not going to let them cause any trouble here. So just be careful about hanging around with those boys. This was my first day literally, of secondary school. I was 12 years of age, and something in me snapped. You know, and I, 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 I said a word that's unrepeatable in church on a Sunday morning. Um, and, uh, and I remember thinking, you want trouble? I'll show you what trouble's like. And uh, by the end of that day, I'd got the cane, on my first day of secondary school. This was I told you, Charles Dickens. A whack on the backside with the cane three times. Uh, for the next six months, I got the cane every week. For six months. And then I thought to myself, I need to change something here. <laughs> and every time I got in trouble, it, it was because my friends were daring me to do something, and I wanted to look cool. How dumb is that? And uh, instead of sort of just finding who I was and discovering who I was, I allowed my identity to be defined by my social group. And, and, and that's, such a, that's such a trap. I want to say to you young people, you know, you are who you are. And if somebody can't accept you the way you are, that relationship is probably not healthy for you. I remember one day I was, I had had to ask a teacher a lift home from school. So I just went up to the teacher. I said, can I have a lift home from school? She said, well, are you ill? I said, no, I just would like a lift home. She (laughs) said, don't be so impertinent. I remember those words. Don't be so impertinent. (laughs) And so, you know, I had to walk home. But the next day, I got called. Uh, My name was called out of the class. I got the cane three times for asking a teacher a lift home from school. This would be illegal today, wouldn't it? But these are true stories. And, um, and, and the thing was, I had to learn how, I learned after about a year of my first year of secondary school, I learned how to finesse things. In other words, how to make trouble without getting caught. <laughs> Anyone know what I'm talking about here? Oh, yeah, you've got to learn that one, baby. If, if, there's, if there's going to be punishment and a cane at the end of it, you've got to learn how to be bad without getting caught. But again, you know, nothing is shifting really. It's just, it's just the same stuff that's happening. I'm, I'm doing it for affirmation. I'm doing it because my friend said, oh, he's this and he's this. And you know what made it worse? My father's a policeman. <laughs> How crazy is that? And, uh, and uh, so it was, yeah, it was just one of those crazy things where in life I, I just kept on making decisions that were really more about what other people thought than about what I thought or about what God thought and it took me a while to see that that was happening it really took me a long while and it was it was only through a relationship with Jesus that i began to understand i'm accepted by him for who i am i actually don't need to be the class clown or the class idiot or the class whatever i could actually learn to be myself Uh, And that the friendships that would come out of that would be more authentic, more genuine. They, They wouldn't be me playing to my peers or playing to the crowd or trying to please other people's expectations. And so many times when it comes to making decisions in life, it's so interesting at a subliminal level the things that can be motivating us. And, and if you've got a need in your life or an unmet need or an unfulfilled need, it's amazing how, you can, how that can draw you into a set of decisions that, that with your mind, you know, this is not a good thing to do, but you end up being there. You end up doing that. And, and so um, I want to sort of unpack this a little bit this morning and perhaps give us a, a few keys Uh, as to how we can be people who make good decisions. Do you remember 1 Kings 18.21? This is Elijah with the people of God. And he says, Elijah approached all the people. He said, how long are you going to be paralyzed by indecision? This is the net version of the Bible, by the way. How long are you going to be paralyzed by indecision? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Have you ever had a decision you need to make and you just feel paralyzed? I really don't know what to do. And so... You know, I had a friend of mine who used to experience this all the time, and I, and I remember saying to him, "Ben, you've really got to, you've really got to make a decision." And, and he would just not make the decision. And what would happen is time would go on, and then eventually circumstances overtook the decision, and so he didn't actually make it. But a decision was made. It was made through his passivity. It was made through his inaction. But what he couldn't handle was people pointing the finger and said, you made that decision. He could legitimately hold up his hand and say, well, I didn't decide that. How you know people avoid sometimes making decisions because they can't face the consequence of somebody pointing the finger and said, you did that. And so they live with constant indecision in their life. And the problem with living indec- with indecision in your life is that eventually life overtakes you. Life makes the choices for you, or other people do. Other people more dominant, other people more controlling, other people not afraid to have the finger pointed at them. And that's just not a great way to live. And Elijah is talking to the nation here, and he said, come on, we're people in covenant relationship with God. Why on earth are you paralyzed with indecision? If Baal is God, worship him. In other words, if you really don't think God is up to this, then go the whole hog. You know, Augustine wrote this once, if you're going to sing sin, sin well. <laughs> in, in, in other words, you know, go the whole way. Joe said it in her exhortation this morning. You, you can't serve two masters. You'll love one and despise the other, or you'll be devoted to one. And forsake the other. And Elijah is confronting the people here. If the Lord is God, is a true God, follow him. If Baal is, follow him. But the people didn't say a word. Isn't that interesting? We're not going to decide. We're going to say nothing. And I think the worst kind of leadership that you can ever encounter is leadership that says nothing. It's leadership that just becomes passive. It's leadership that becomes silent. It's leadership that doesn't dare to confront. It's leadership that doesn't dare to say, come on, this is the way we're going. You know, it's interesting, the word decision comes from the Latin, which literally means to cut. That's where we get the surgeon's word, incision. So a decision is literally a cutting away. To decide literally means you cut off all the other options. Because as soon as you say yes to something, it's implicit. You're saying no to everything else. That's what happens when you get married, isn't it? You say, I do. And as soon as you say, I do, to that girl, it's implicit. You're saying no to all the others. At least that's the way it should be. That's why it's really good to do mind your marriage. Let me encourage you. Do mind your marriage. You know, I... I wish we'd had that years ago. You know, we, had to, we just had to sort of get married and work it out. There's <laughs> just no help like that, I'm telling you. Anyone with a little bit of gray hair in the room knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> it was like, good luck. <laughs> God was very kind to me. He gave me five daughters. I know more about women than it's healthy for any man to know. It's it's like, it it, it took six women to teach me. I remember I was in Africa once, and I said, I live with six women. And there were about six men at the back who cheered. And and apparently they all had six wives. So I had to clarify, no, I live with six women, but I'm only married to one. Uh, I had to clarify that very quickly. (laughs) Listen, sometimes in life, the temptation is to forsake, just like with the people of God here. When you're tempted to forsake, the decision you need to make is to trust. You need to make a decision to trust. The Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. Sometimes trust... Will go will will seem counterintuitive because it goes against logic. It goes against what you think. But but trust. When I graduated from Bible college, a lot of my friends, we were talking about what we would do. And I said, Well, I feel like a call to ministry. And they, and I said, What are you gonna do? And, and and some of them said, Well, I'm gonna get a job and I'm gonna get married and I'm gonna get a house. You know, and, and that's the road I'm going to take. And, and a lot of them took that road. You know, they literally did that. They got jobs. They, they got engaged. They got married. They got houses. They got on the property ladder. I, I worked for the church. You know, my first salary working for the church was three pounds a week. You know, even back in the 70s, that wasn't much. Just, just in case you're thinking that was Charles Dickens' time as well. But it really wasn't a lot of money. And um, I, I remember when, uh, when I got married, I remember saying to my wife before we got married, I said, you know, because of the calling on my life, we might never own a home. And I want you to be at peace with that. And if you can't be at peace with that, I, I don't think you should marry me. Because I know what's on my life. I know what God is going to call me to. And uh, I, I just think it's unfair on you if, if you've got all those expectations. So if you marry me, you have to accept you probably will never own your own home. And uh, I remember her just looking at me and thinking. And and she didn't say anything. And I thought, okay, that went down well. (laughs) And then the next day I got a card from her. And uh, in that card, she wrote a little scripture from Ruth chapter 1. "Entreat me not to leave you, nor to return from following you. Where you go, there will I out will I go, your God shall be my God, where you die there will I be buried. I was like, (laughs) oh, I struck gold. (laughs) So all of our friends were owning homes, I was working for the church, we were living off her salary that first year because I was getting three pounds a week and then she got pregnant and then we had to have two people living with us because we couldn't afford the rent if we didn't have two lodges with us. Don't recommend that in your first years of marriage, but there you go. That's we were working it out. <laughs> After we'd been married for three years, we ended up in a little council house. After we'd lived in that council house for three years, Margaret Fadger made a decision. She used to be the Prime Minister of Britain, for those of you who are too young to understand that. <laughs> first woman Prime Minister. Yes. She made a decision. All the council houses should be sold off to the people who are living at them at 30% below the market value. Thank you, Margaret. (laughs) So after we'd lived in our house for three years, we ended up buying our house at 30% below the market value. So listen to this. All of my friends who left Bible college, who pursued a career, got a job, got married, got into the housing market. Six years later, I had a three-year-old house at a mortgage half the rate of everybody else's with more equity than anybody who had pursued a career. God is no man's debtor. Now, now when I was leaving Bible college and said, I'm going to go into ministry, that didn't look like a great decision if your ambition was to own a home. If your ambition, if your goal in life was, I want to get on the property ladder, I want to get a job, I want to get a good salary, I want to have a big house, if that was your goal in life, that was not a great decision. But the Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. You see, both of us went into ministry where in our hearts we died to the desire of owning our own home. We literally died to it. I said, this might never happen. If it happens, great, but if it didn't happen, that's good too. Listen, you brought nothing into the world, and you're not taking anything out of it. Don't get too attached to your nice home, your nice car, and your nice clothes. Because when you're buried, you're not taking them with you. I mean, you can, you can have an Egyptian theology, if you like. Or you can have covenant theology. And, and so we just died to all that stuff. But here's the wonderful thing. God gave it to us anyway. Because it wasn't an issue. So, so how many of you know now that decision was a great decision? Do you get that? Here's the thing about good decisions. They never look good at the time. If they look good at the time, everybody would be making great decisions. But a good decision looks like a bad decision at the time. It looks like you'll lose. It looks like you'll end up with less. It looks like it will disadvantage you. That's the problem with a good decision. It requires trust. whenever you're tempted to forsake come on I want to to encourage you be somebody who trusts I've discovered this in my life trust is a choice you make and a risk that you take it's a choice you make it's a risk you take you'll never eliminate the risk of trusting and you'll never eliminate the fact that trust is always a choice Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. What happens? He directs your paths. You see, you make a decision to trust God and God directs the path that you take in life. You make a decision to trust yourself and your own wisdom and your own understanding, good luck. Because your good decisions will look great at the beginning. But you never know what a good decision is till a few years have passed. Do you get that? It, it's, it's as life unfolds that you see the quality of every choice that you've made. And as life was unfolding for me, I realised as a teenager I was making lots of dumb decisions because I was more concerned about what other people thought of me than what God thought of me or even what I thought of myself. Do you get this? We've got we to learn to be people who, who who make decisions based on trusting God for outcomes. Do you get that? Um, <clears throat> I, have you ever had one of those um, points in life where you're under pressure and there's a temptation to make a choice that you know you shouldn't make, but the temptation is to make it anyway. Can I, can I share with you from Jesus' life? Because he had one of those decisions. He had one of those moments. In John 12, verse 27 to 28, here's what it says. John 12, 27 to 28. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I both glorified it and I'll glorify it again. You know, in this amazing verse, we get insight into the inner world of Jesus. And in this moment in his life, John 12 is literally the last um, three days of Jesus' life. So from John 13 onwards, you've got the last three days of Jesus' life right up until. John chapter 20, and then 20 and 21 is the last two weeks. So so John's gospel, which is 21 chapters, those first 12 chapters is the three and a half years of Jesus' life. From chapter 13 onwards, it's the last few days. So it's a lot of chapters covering a few days. Most people don't recognize that. So here's Jesus, and he's saying this. Now I've come to the hour. I've come to that moment of sacrifice. I've come to that moment where the cross... It's something I'm gonna have to embrace. And he said, My soul is troubled. (laughs) How many of you know that the cross was one of the most cruel ways of dying that anybody could ever possibly experience? It was it was insanely torturous. You you could actually be hanging on a cross for days. It's one of the reasons why the Roman soldiers used to break the legs. Because as long as your legs were intact, you could literally hold yourself up. And eventually, you were exhausted. As you hung through exhaustion, your lungs couldn't expand properly because you're like this. Your chest can't expand properly. You actually die of suffocation. That's what happens on the cross. And that's why when they came along to break Jesus' legs, because they wanted to hurry, because the Passover was at hand, they wanted to break his legs. He was dead already. They didn't have to do it. But the cross was a a cruel, cruel way of dying. It was terrible. And bearing in mind, the Romans had been doing this for like 50 years. So, So that Jesus would have passed by. Everybody would have seen people dying on a cross. They would have seen how horrific it was. And, and here's Jesus, he's come to that hour and he says, my soul is troubled. You know, Jesus experienced inner turmoil. And, and he says, what shall I say? And emotionally, everything in him is repulsed by this and he wants to say, Father, deliver me. That, that, that thought is in his head, he speaks it. What shall I say? Father, deliver me from this hour. And then something happens in Jesus' inner world. He reminds himself, but for this purpose, I've come into the world. And so instead of saying, Father, deliver me from this hour, he makes a different confession. Father, glorify your name. He doesn't make, by the way, a charismatic confession. He doesn't say, life is good, and I'm a blessed son of God, and I'm just going to enjoy the next three days. He doesn't make a charismatic confession. He makes a real confession my soul is troubled, I'm in torment, I'm in turmoil, I feel conflicted in my inner world, but here's my confession, Father, glorify your name. You know, sometimes in life, we just need to default to what's honoring for God. In 1 Corinthians 10, chapter 31, Paul says this to the Corinthian church, there's a whole bunch of argument in the Corinthian church about what you should eat, what you shouldn't eat, what you should do, Uh, you know, about women, should they do this, should they do that, all kinds of things. Paul says, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do in life, do it all for the glory of God. What would happen if we started making decisions that weren't based on how we felt emotionally and our personal suffering, but they were based on what honors God? Father, glorify your name. A voice comes from heaven. I have and I will. Woo! The Bible goes on to say, some said it thundered. Another said an angel speaking to him. Jesus turned around and said, that's not for my benefit. That's for your benefit. So that you know the Father is endorsing me and the choices I'm making. Come on, friends. If you're faced with a tough decision, if you are feeling conflicted emotionally, if your internal world is in turmoil, my encouragement to you is, instead of saying, deliver me, you say, glorify your name. Do what honors you, God, in my life. Isn't that good? You see, whenever I've reverted and defaulted to that posture, Lord, what will glorify you? What will honor you? There was a time where um, there was a particular financial need in our church and things had, some stuff had gone wrong. We ended up owing a lot of money. I remember praying and asking God. I said, Lord, you know, I've, I'm the senior pastor. I've got to take responsibility for this. But uh, there was some mismanagement by a few people over a few things. I suppose you could argue that I didn't have enough accountability structures in place. I guess that could be argued, but nevertheless, I was the guy who had to handle it. And as a result of this, there was a, you know, really a substantial debt. And I remember saying to the Lord, this debt is way too big for me. How do I resolve it? And, and the Lord directed me to read the parable, uh, or not the parable, sorry, the story, the miracle of the five loaves and the two fish. And I, I just got really encouraged. I said, Wow, God, you can just multiply a little. I, I don't need a lot. I just need a little. And then I, I just remember saying to the Lord, well, you, you know, what are my five loaves and my two fish? How many of you know asking God questions is dangerous? Because he likes to answer. Here's the problem I often don't like what he says. So I'm, I'm asking the Lord. What are my five loaves and two fish? And he said, your house. Yeah. That hurt. That hurt. Yeah, you, you gave me this house. This is your house. You gave it to me. And then I got the scripture. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How attached are you? I said, Lord, I'm a father. I've got five. I had five kids at the time. I've got five children. Is this a responsible thing to do? He said, it's what I'm asking you to do. Trust me. So we sold our home. Gave all the money. I think it was about 20,000 pounds. We needed 200,000. But I sold 20,000 pounds. Everything we had. Everything we had. I wanted people to see I'm doing this to honor God's name. I thought, that's pretty cool. Obedient. Blessing will now flow oh my goodness, I had the worst two years of my life, it's like, it's like Joseph, you know, where Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, a man of integrity, he runs away, God's going to bless him now, isn't he, God's going to really honour a man who keeps his integrity, I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep, I'm not going to sleep with you, I'm going to honour God, I'm going to live right, I'm going to do the right thing, and he ends up in a dungeon oh my goodness, have you ever done the right thing and it got worse? You see, that's why making good decisions are hard. That's why it's difficult sometimes to make a good decision because sometimes you make the good decision and your life goes down the crapper and you're saying, what the heck is going on here? And the reason is God's got a way bigger purpose than you can see. God wants to save two nations, the nation of Egypt and the nation of Canaan. He's got in mind to deliver people from a famine that will kill millions. And if two years of suffering will shape you and make you the person he needs to be, he'll do it. We've got to zoom out and get perspective, friends. God knows what he's doing he knows what he's doing so we sold out my father he he just said to me you're insane I said yeah I think I am (laughs) he gave me five thousand pounds for us to put a deposit on another house gave my brother five grand he got an inheritance I didn't know that was coming so we we actually managed to buy another house everything went wrong in that house I mean, everything went wrong. The heating broke down. The gas man came in and said, you're not allowed to use these heaters. So we were going into winter. We had no water, no hot water. Literally, for six months, we heated water on a stove to wash with five kids. We didn't have a Dishwasher broke. Washing machine broke. Everything broke. It was like, <laughs> can it get any worse? You know, and I was even scared to ask that question in case it could. You know, and it was just tough. It was just tough. And I, I remember, you know, just in that place, I remember saying to God, I've got nothing. I was so angry. I've, I've got nothing. I remember the Holy Spirit said to me you've got nothing but my grace <sighs> then I started sobbing and then the Lord said and watch what that's going to do and I thought okay okay and then a friend of mine said I think you need to go back to university and I, I thought well, yeah right not doing that one five kids, one on the way And he goes, no, I think you should go. And I remember going for an interview to the university, uh, Lancaster University. It it was a a master's degree in leadership and organisational development. And I was really wrestling with this because part of me really wanted to do it and part of me was thinking, this is just insane. I remember walking into a leaders' meeting one time. It It was just a small leaders' meeting, about 40 leaders, there was a worship leader there called Dave Bilborough. I'll never forget it. He's, he's written loads of songs in the UK. Because I had to step over his body. He was lying at the doorway. The Holy Spirit had just, you know, was ministering to him. <laughs> I remember climbing over him, walking into the room. And there was this prophet there called Michael Sullivan. You may have heard of him. He, he used to be with Mike Bickle, uh, part of the Kansas City Prophets. And he was sitting in a chair right opposite me. I walked in the room. He said, I have a word for that man. I thought, oh boy, I'm in trouble. Again. He said, God has taken you out of leadership. He said, you're a pastor, you're a teacher, you're a leader. He's taken you out because he wants to add an academic dimension to your understanding of leadership. And he's going to make a way for you to do that. I was crying. My wife was crying. I thought, this is good. Went for this interview at Lancaster University. And, uh, you know, I remember the professor saying to, you know, asking me about my background. I said, well, I'm a pastor. I've I've led a church. I've mobilized um, hundreds of volunteers and he said, oh, he said, you're very different, aren't you? <laughs> I said, yes. <laughs> he said, we think you'll really add something interesting to our program. <laughs> he said, everybody on our program is a CEO or head of HR. Or, and everyone on that program, I mean, there were heads of banks, heads of national uh, health service in the UK, heads of insurance companies, all kinds of HR professionals and CEOs were doing this, this degree. And little old me. I remember walking out of the interview, and as I was walking past the reception, she said, oh, the professor will contact you and let you know if you're on the program. And I said, no, he's already told me I'm on the program. And she said, ooh. She said, ooh, you must be special. And I said, yes, i rather think I am. <laughs> uh, and the guy who suggested I go on this program Wonderful guy, Ian McMonagle is his name. I remember he he came to me and he said, Well, how did the interview go? And I said, Well, they've accepted me on the program. And he goes, Well, I just want you to know God's told me I'm going to pay for you to go on that program. (laughs) 10,000 pounds back in 1997. 10,000 pounds. Do you know what my wife said? She said, Well, if you're going to university, I want a new kitchen. (laughs) Oh, man alive. Isn't that typical? (laughs) I I tried to rebuke the devil in her but it didn't work (laughs) I remember going back to prayer and I said Lord you've graciously opened the door for me to do this you've given me 10,000 can you give me 11 so I can get a new kitchen for my wife actually I did it all flat packed a thousand pounds I built the whole thing myself over three months gave her a new kitchen she was very happy how many of you know happy wife happy life Have you discovered that one yet? Oh, guys, all the young men in the room. Let me tell you, don't mess with the nest. Whatever color she wants, let her have it, because she's going to repaint it anyway. See, Jesus was internally conflicted. He was internally conflicted, but he made a choice. Listen, I was internally conflicted. I didn't want I didn't want to do that, so I went back. What would honor God? What would honor God here? Registering the church as bankrupt? No, that wouldn't honor God. Giving away my house? Well, if I have to. And do you know what? God enabled us to get this other house. After I finished my master's degree, I got a job with a management development company and I felt like Joseph. Everything I touched, God blessed. It was ridiculous. I just had this amazing, supernatural wisdom. I mean, I know I had education. I know I had experience. I had both those things. But somehow, I knew the right thing to do in certain situations. And it always made money. And my boss loved me. He was a Jewish atheist. There's a contradiction. A Jewish atheist. And he goes, he used to say to me, I effing love you. That's literally what he would say to me. And I I don't mean to offend anybody here, but he'd say, I effing love you. You make me loads of effing money. (laughs) And i said, well, thank you. (laughs) And so over the next three years, I was responsible for a a department where we trained people to start their own businesses. And uh, over three years, uh, we trained 2,000 people to start their own businesses. I personally mentored over 100 businessmen over that period of time. So I, I kind of understood about organizations and developing organizations and, and building organizations. I get that. And pastors are never trained to do that, by the way. And we, we've got to bring that back in. That's, that's what I did when I was in the Bible college in Denmark. I started bringing in an understanding of organizational development. And, and what was fascinating to me was I started to mentor people I needed on my house. So like the whole plumbing needed redoing. So I was, I was, I, I was mentoring a brand new plumber. And heating engineer, he said, I'm starting my business. I said, well, why don't you work on my house and give me a good price? (laughs) And instead of me paying him, my boss paid him my bonus direct to him. And over the next two years, my house was completely refurbished, rewired, replumbed. It was great. It was really good. And then I was headhunted by a, a, a Bible college in Denmark, and I decided we would move the whole family to Denmark. It was another big decision. We went through six months of prayer and talking and, and thinking about that decision to relocate our family to Denmark. And I, I, I didn't know whether to tell my boss, because everybody who said they were quitting the firm was escorted out of the building. They entered their desks, They were given garden leave. They went out the building. And I only needed to give him two weeks' notice, actually. And this was three months ahead, and I thought, shall I hold it back from him? And I felt, like, I felt like the Lord in Genesis where he's with Abraham. Shall I withhold from Abraham the thing I'm about to do? You know, I just thought, this guy's really blessed me. He's really honoured me. He's really taken care of me. But he's an atheist. And he might think I'm betraying him and he might punish me. And I, I was conflicted. I couldn't live without three months' salary. And I thought, do I tell him or do I risk it? And I, it was, I didn't know what to do. I was like paralyzed. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? I want to take care of my family. I don't want to, have, I don't want to not have money. But I really feel like I should tell him. I just came back to, well, what would honor God? I thought, ah, oh, shoot. Ask that question again. I thought, I need to tell him. I remember going his, into his office. I said, Stuart, I need to tell you. I've... I've got another job that I'm going to start in three months' time. He said, whatever they're paying you, you can add 20%. Whatever the increase is, just add 20%. I want you to stay. I've got plans for you. And I said, well, you'll be pleased to know they're paying me less than you pay me. I'm not doing it because of money. I've loved working for you. I've loved working here. You've really blessed me. But I'm doing it because of the call of God on my life. And he goes... What? <laughs> I said well you know I'm a Christian I said I'm doing this because I feel like God wants me to do it and it's, it's no reflection on you you've been amazing and he said we're going to have lunch together shut up get out my office we're having lunch together so I left the office I thought oh dear so he took me out to lunch and for an hour and a half I talked to him about Jesus and I talked to him about my calling and I talked to him about what I was doing and he just, he just listened intently just really intently it's so funny because I I used to work with a guy who was Jewish he was a very prophetic guy he was Jewish and everywhere we went he'd always say to people oh by the way do you know you're Jewish and they would look at him and go what he got this little radar and he goes yeah check it out and people would check out and they'd find out they were Jewish how did you know (laughs) how do you know and we would be in the weirdest places like I remember once we were in a men's toilet lined up How many of you know that's just embarrassing, right? We're all lined up there, as as boys do. You know, and he turns to the guy next to him and he goes, you're Jewish. And it wasn't because he could see something. (laughs) So anyway, I'm out, you know, fast forward five years, I'm out with my boss, I'm having this lunch for an hour and a half and we're talking away. And, uh, and I go, Stuart, how did you discover you were Jewish? He goes, that's a very funny story. I was in a toilet one day. <laughs> I, I know that guy. <laughs> he, he said to me on, on that lunchtime, he said, I promised you a car, didn't I? And I said, Stuart, I'm leaving in, in three months. You, you don't have to get me a car. He said, no, no, I promised you a car. We're going to go and get it today. I've I've, I've waited long enough. He said, I promised it to you over two months ago. He said, come on, we're going to go and buy a car. Can you believe this? So we go to a showroom, and he goes, just choose a car. Choose a car. I said, I'll have that one. (laughs) I could make that decision. Didn't even pray about it. I want that one. Thank you, Jesus. I remember driving that car home, and, uh, you know, up until that time, I'd had a bit of a wreck of a car. In fact, it was a really good car. It was a Mazda. It was a four-door Mazda. But the only problem was, the driver door used to fall off. <laughs> there was so much rust on this car. So I used to climb in the driver's side, the uh, passenger side. I used to pray, if the police stopped me, please don't ever let them ask me to get out the car. <laughs> That's just, that would just be embarrassing, wouldn't it? Boom. Oops. <laughs> so one day I went along to a scrapyard and I managed to get, I find a Mazda the same year, the same make, the same model. And I bought the four doors and I put them on my car. It was just one problem. It was a different color. I thought it was really cool. A red Mazda with four silver doors. I thought that was cool. How many of you know teenagers do not think that's cool? I used to drive my kids to school, and about a kilometre before the school, they'd say, right here, Dad, this is fine, we're just going to, we need the exercise, we're going to get fresh air, you're embarrassed by me, aren't you? No, 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 it's not that at all, we just, you know, just want to walk with our friends. I remember when I got that brand new car, my kids were saying, right outside the front gate, please, right there, today, it's my dad, that's his car. see, making good decisions, you know, it isn't easy at the time. You can feel highly conflicted in your heart. And you can take the easy option. Jesus could have said, Father, deliver me from this hour. Everything in his emotion and in his psyche wanted to take that route. But he went back to purpose. For this purpose I've come into the world. Come on, friends. You've got a purpose. You're here to arise, shine and the glory of the Lord is upon you. Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your shining. God's got something better for you, even in your business. You don't have to compromise. You don't have to uh, cheat. You don't have to swindle people. You can be a person of integrity. And if you go through a season where it just seems rough, and it feels like, hang on a minute, I did the right thing and it's getting worse, hold in there. Hold on there. God is testing you. God is shaping you. The blessing will come. <laughs> I think some of you here are facing some really critical decisions right now. You can, you can choose to make a decision that's more about you and how you feel, or you can make a decision rooted in purpose because you're called and you're destined. And the hand of God is on your life, and He's not just concerned about you and your family. He's concerned about this city and this nation. He's concerned about preparing a people that are going to have an amazing influence and impact. So I don't know the different decisions you're making, and you don't need to tell me. You don't need to share that with me right now. All you need to do is ask yourself: Am I prepared? to let the glory of God and let honouring God be what informs the decision I'm about to make And, and, and once you've made it don't go back on it don't second guess yourself don't say oh hang on a minute hold in hold on hold out Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch.